Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and talk with my colleagues in film, TV, and docs. Today is actually a bit bittersweet. Just shy of our 100th Art of the Cut podcast, I'll be saying goodbye to my relationship with Pro Video Coalition and moving my Art of the Cut interviews over to the Frame.io blog. Hopefully, for most of the listeners and readers of Art of the Cut, it will not really be a change at all. Just a new home for the same content you've always come to expect from me. So don't change that dial. We're not going away, just going someplace else. And hopefully you'll want to continue to join me and our great guests each week for a long time to come. With that said, today I'm talking with Trevor Ambrose, who just won the 2021 Ace Eddie for Best Edited Comedy Series for Commercial Television for an episode of Schitt's Creek called Happy Ending. His work on the series has also garnered a Canadian Cinema Editor's Award, a Director's Guild of Canada Award, Canadian Screen Awards nominations, and a Primetime Emmy nomination. Let's talk about Schitt's Creek, which in our household, a favorite show. <laughs> Absolutely. My wife and I just love watching it. How did you get onto that project? A guardian angel to me in my whole career, uh, Colin Brunton, who's a producer extraordinaire in Canada, has really been instrumental in a lot of good gigs that I've had, and this one in particular. And he called me about a pilot, and the pilot was for Schitt's Creek. They'd already done like a presentation type of thing. So I saw that and I always like to have really good reasons to be on something. And Eugene Levy being in it, I was a big fan of his ever since I was a little kid. I was a big fan of Second City, a big fan of Colin Brunton. And that's all I really needed to know. And I was like, I know it's going to be a good show because it's going to be a Colin show. I so wanted to work with Eugene. So that's how it started. And then working on Schitt's Creek for the six seasons that I worked on it from like the very first show to the very last show, it was just a really wonderful experience for me. And the whole style of the show was on a certain level underpinned by just the notion of inclusiveness. It's not a homophobic world. It's not a racist world. It's an inclusive world where everyone is included. And that underpins a lot of the aesthetic of the show. It's inclusive. So in other words, there's nothing sycophantic to it. The way it's often cut throughout it is that everybody in the scene is included, whether you're the star of the show or the day player or anything. So everyone has got a lot of equal time course, if someone's driving a scene in particular, they'll be central to the scene and you'll be seeing them a lot, for instance. But often in terms of the way the scene goes, everyone is used to serve the scene rather than to serve the personality of someone. So in that sense, even the aesthetic of the editing was inclusive. I love the character of Stevie. And I always thought that, especially in those early seasons, even though she didn't seem like she was an important character at the beginning, you're like, she got a lot of screen time. <laughs> It's true. Her and David, they're kindred spirits. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the aspects of comedy. I think of at least Eugene as being such an improviser. How much of the script is improvised? How much of it is scripted? And then how hard is that as an editor to deal with? They are mainly doing the script, but they don't have a compartmentalized idea of what an improv would be. So it's kind of like now they're going to do the improv and now they're going to do the script. If something happens during the course of a scene, they'll run with it. 
They don't necessarily stick to the script exactly. It's not like every word has to be said exactly like this. If they really know their stuff, they can say it in the way that just comes out of them. And the acting in the show was of the caliber that they could run with that kind of thing and just go jazz improv and say it the way they wanted to say it. In terms of just like going off altogether, it would be like endings might come a bit differently. So it might end differently than it started. They weren't going into a whole lot of improvisational directions where it's just kind of like it completely turned into something else altogether, mainly the script, but they had a looseness with it where they knew their character and their lyrics enough to be able to say it the way they wanted to at the time. So that's a form of improv so that they're not being really structured to, they have to say it in a mechanical way, exactly this way. And it added a lot of fluidity and naturalism to it. People could speak over each other and you'd incorporate that. We never went, don't speak over each other. Sometimes that's the style of editing where it's no, don't ever overlap. We'll do the overlaps. It's like, go ahead, overlap. We'll make use of those overlaps and you can have fun with overlaps. You can just let them overlap and find the way to get it together on the cuts to the purpose of creating that wonderful connected energy. It wasn't exactly like the Christopher Guest films where they're really going into improvisational directions. They're really good deep scripts that they stuck with, but they had the license to say things the way they wanted to say them. That's my take on the improv. I worked on a show that was very similar in that it wasn't improvisational, but the director let the actors wing their lines as long sure. as they were basically the same. And it made it very difficult I thought, to edit sometimes because every take was slightly different. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's a more challenging form of edit. You have to keep your thinking cap on and work out, does this line make sense after this line now that they've changed them? Sometimes if the improv happened only off screen, as in the character on screen says something in an improv and then the off-screen person responds in an improv, you just leave it all off-screen and then try and find yourself to get back to the normal script again. It does present challenges. If the improv is worth it, you can use it and just try and find your way into an organic groove of the way the scene should be. Sometimes it doesn't really fit into what the scene really wants, so it ends up on the editing room floor, so to speak. Sure, something that could be very funny just doesn't work with the story. Yeah, but if it's really driving something or if it's absurd enough, or if it's character driven enough, if it's really worth it, then you just go, okay, let's just figure a way to get it in there. But if it's not worth it, then you don't <laughs> just do it for the sake of it. What is your approach to editing? What do you do with a blank timeline? Okay. This is the way I edit, which is a bit different. Get all my footage because you've got all your different setups. Setup is just sort of like a particular shot, a close-up of character A, close-up of character B, the medium shot of character A, the medium shot of character B, the wide shots, all the various things. So what I end up doing is I create a sequence, which I call all, A-L-L, -L, and I throw everything into that sequence. And I separate every setup by nine seconds, just because it gives me a visual representation of that's one setup, nine seconds. That's another setup in the timeline. I can just see that they're all chunked out that way. I'll look at them in multicam. So I'm looking at both shots at the same time. So they'll shoot like the close up and then the wider version of that same person, or if it's cross shooting, it'll be that. So I'll watch both at the same time. And as I'm watching each setup, so there might be nine different setups in the whole thing with two different cameras. I'm watching the all. So it's all timeline editing, by the way, I don't go to the bin anymore. And in one setup that has, say, four takes, I'll go, okay, I like take number three the best. I duplicate the all sequence into a select sequence. So I always have that all to refer to. So I can just scan through it and always see all the footage. So I'm watching the selects, which has got all of the stuff in it. 
I look at the first setup, it's got four takes in it, say, say I like the third take the best, I'll eliminate one, two, and four. So I only have three. Then I go to the next setup and it's kind of like, oh, I like the first half of take one and the second half of take four, say. So I'll get rid of everything else. So I only have the first half of take one and the second half of take four. I go through this process. So I go, these are my selects of what I like best out of the setups. And then I take that selects sequence and I duplicate it again. And then by that time, I've got an idea of how I would like to cut it together because I've seen all the footage and I've been puzzling it together the whole time. And I'll just give a very normal, classic film language scenario for a general scene. Say I came up with the idea of, I want to start in wide to establish the geography. The two characters, say it's just a two-hander, are speaking. So it's character A and B, A and B. Those two people are going to speak for a while. At one point, someone else comes in the room and there's a medium shot of the person coming through the room. So I've got the general structure of it in my head. You go back to the close-ups and then it ends in a wide shot to have some kind of awkward silence. So I look at this duplication of the selects that have got all the different shots in it that I like. And I basically cut out all of the negative space. I cut out all the parts that I don't want anymore, which leaves me with all the little bites of character A saying line one, character B saying line two, character A saying line three, character, like it's just checkerboards back and forth. So I end up getting all of the different segments of dialogue out of each character. I get that wide shot that I want it to establish the beginning of it. I get all the different segments that I want. And I'm basically left with a sequence that's all out of order, but it has all the different segments of what I will want in the final edit. I take all those little segments, move them over by two minutes, and then start pulling over in order all the different shots. Wide shot, character A, character B, character A, character B. Oh, I want it that reaction shot over top of character A from character B. And I line it up like that. Then I look at this thing and it's a clunky edit because it's just in order, but it's going to have clunky edits in it and it might not even be structured properly. I'll look at it and go, okay, I like the structure of it. So now I'm going to hone all of the different edits and smooth them out, do a rhythm pass and just make everything have good continuity and rhythm to it. Also, I might see in that first clunky pass, oh, structure-wise, I went into the close-ups too early. I want to stay in medium shots. So I'll fix those kind of structural problems at that point before I get into all the finessing. Once I have it all sorted out and I'm like, okay, I like the structure. I hone all the edits. I look at it. And generally it's a nice flowing scene and I put it into a sequence for the episode. So that's my process of cutting. When you're using the multicam stuff, is that as simple when you have a multicam sequence of just punching to the other camera or are you having to do something else like go to a different actual setup? It depends on what they shot, yeah. but it's always fun to go like, you know what, we need to be in close right now because it got emotional or, or whatever intensity and you can easily go from the nice wide-ish medium shots and then just go click. Ah, there's the close-up. But sometimes <laughs> you have to go like, where is the close-up? Because they shot it separately. Because sometimes you get the good shot that's over shoulder, and then you get the not as good shot because the camera couldn't fit in properly. So you have to go, okay, let's go to the real close-up when they did really shoot it because that was shot properly. So yep. yeah, sometimes you get lucky enough to be able to click over as an editor, as I'm sure you know, but often you have to go to a new shot altogether. Sometimes multicam gets used differently especially for comedy where a close-up on you and a close-up on me is the multicam. Yeah. And sometimes they do multicam where it's the close-up on you and the wide shot on you or the close-up yeah. and the two. I like that cross-shooting. They didn't do a whole lot of it, but I do like cross-shooting because you can get the performers in the same continuity, obviously, but they're rolling with each other. That stuff can be wonderful, but 
A lot of DOPs don't like doing it because they have different lighting setups on each side and they can't control the lighting. But I think that more people should put effort into that because I think it's priceless to have two performers or a whole bunch of performers in the same moment. So give us an idea on a typical scene, how long the all might be, 90 minutes, 45 minutes? It could be anything. Like on the movie that I'm just working on right now, I had one scene that had seven hours worth of material which is the most I've ever had ever. But typically if I'm looking at something in Schitt's Creek, I might be looking at for a three minute scene, say 50 minutes worth of double camera footage, which I consider it to be a hundred minutes of footage because yeah. all the footage altogether is actually a hundred minutes. I might be watching it two shots at a time, but I don't know, it could be something like that. It could be a couple of hours. It might be as little as 35 minutes. It depends. You get from, let's say 50 minute double cam, two camera times 50. And then the next pass where you're saying, I like take four and scene one and two. Sure. Then what's that pass? Because I have yeah. a hard time getting my brain around, like you said, seven hours of material. You just can't even come to grips with that. So it does help to go, okay, let's get it down to what's the next pass? 20 minutes, 15 minutes? Yeah, it'd be that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then you get it down to six or seven or whatever it is. And then yeah. you start turning it into a scene. Yeah. You have a great big pass of two hours of footage that you're looking at for a simple like five minute scene, which is a pretty big scene in a TV show. You're looking at that and you're getting all the best takes out of it. So then all that footage comes down to like about 20 minutes of which then you start going like the next pass is I'm going right in for the cut now. I'm getting rid of all the stuff I don't want out of that sequence. And I'm left with only the bites of dialogue that I actually do want to have. And then sometimes an alt, because I'm like, I'm not sure if I want that in there or not, because it's an interesting improv or something. And from there, it goes down great big, 20 minutes, right down to the cut. Got it. That type of thing. Because you have to zero in on, this is the good stuff and get rid of the stuff that you don't want to use. Otherwise, you'll just be pulling your hair out going like, it could be this or it could be that. Yeah. You got to make progress. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Like when you deal with a whole lot of footage, it's a really overwhelming feeling to just go, I don't know what to do. Like sometimes when there's so much footage, but if you just start going, what should it be? Then you can get rid of all the things that it shouldn't be. And then you can start focusing up on, okay, this is the good stuff. And things become clearer and clearer as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you said is when you're done with that, you start putting it in a sequence. That's been a discussion I've had with many editors is when do you do that? Obviously, it's shot out of order, so you can't do it with every scene anyway, right? Because you might be working on scene 12 and scene 11 and scene 13 aren't even shot True. yet. True. I was on Shit's Creek. I was generally doing it right away when I was satisfied because I try and cut to the ideal of a scene, meaning that I'm not just trying to loosely put it together and I'll take care of it later. I'll go like, it's this type of scene. It's got a lot of snappy powder. It's going to be cut together very quickly. And this is the way I want it. Or it's a very languid scene because there's a lot of pregnant pauses or whatever, but whatever it is, I'm trying to cut to the ideal of whatever the performances and script should be as far as I'm concerned. So by the time I've got it, the scene cut into shape, I feel like it's show worthy. I put it into the sequence in order. And if I've put scene two in and the next scene is scene five, I'll just leave black in between the two. And then when three and four go in, then I'll put them in and they'll get tied together. Mm -hmm. But you're doing it as you cut. Yeah, I do it as I cut. Yeah. Yeah, because then I know it's been taken care of in my mind. I won't go back to my scene bin to look at it anymore. And if I do want to look at it, I'll look at it in the episode. So I'm actually doing the work on the episode. 
And if I ever want to just look at it and go like, how are these scenes flowing? Because sometimes you just need a break from just the grunt work of just cutting everything together all the time. You just go, how is this coming across? And watch three or four scenes play in order and get a feel for how the show is actually going. What's the schedule like on Schitt's Creek? And do they cross board at all? Or are they always shooting in order of episodes one at a time? They generally shot two episodes at a time. And it would be like one and two. That would be one block and three and four, that type of thing. So they would generally shoot in order, but not one at a time, a couple at a time. What's the time from getting the first scene of a new show to having everything complete? How long is that normally before you actually have all the scenes generally? You're working on scenes that you're getting throughout because they're shooting at a location for say episode one, but they're shooting it months later because it's in some location or some set that they haven't built yet. So it's shot way after the fact. So you're constantly cutting way out of order. But if I were to add it up, yeah, I'd say that from beginning of editor's cut to lock, it's about two or three weeks in terms of days. Mm-hmm. It's around there. And some shows are more difficult and some shows go together more easily. So yeah, two or three weeks of actual edit days would go into it, I would say. And I'm including editor's cut, director's cut, producers, all the different cuts. Sure. Tell me about working with the directors on the show. Are you getting new directors regularly and you're trying to steward them a little bit or is it a pretty set group of directors that you're working with they like going to different directors throughout some directors would be there for a few years but there's constant new blood going on in terms of the directors none of them were like inexperienced or anything like that they're all experienced but they like just having the freshness of new directors on a season basis does that pose a challenge that they don't know the style or something No, I think that Dan Levy and Eugene Levy and myself to a certain extent and just different people that are involved have the Bible going in terms of what the style of the show is. So any director that comes on is introduced to this is the way we like to shoot things that might be different than another situation. So everyone's informed as to the style of the show. So I think it creates a certain freshness to have new people involved. It's not really a problem, I don't think. I just know on some shows, because the director has not been on the entire series or multiple seasons, sometimes it falls to the editor to be the steward and say, this is how the show is supposed to look. That is very true. Yeah. You end up getting, this is the way we shoot things. It's been communicated from editing to direction. But like I said, it's communicated from the showrunners, the levies to the directors as well. But there is a way that Schitt's Creek likes to go together. It's not like radically different than most shooting, but there is a way to put it together. It's not necessarily going to be the typical way to put it together, depending on the show that you're on. We don't like close shots. We like things to have a certain looseness. We like things to be dirty or over people's shoulders. So people are constantly connected with each other. You mentioned talking over each other. That's probably one of the feels. Don't fear people speaking over each other. Continuity was really important to us because everything is over. So there's not that many isolated shots. We're trying to avoid isolated shots. In other words, shots that are just a close up with no one's shoulder in the shot or no one's head in the shot. It creates a lot of challenges in terms of continuity, but it's worth it because it always ties people together to see the other person still in the shot. But at the same time, continuity is extremely important to make sure that we don't break the reality of the interactions between characters. 
even if you have to trick the cut, as in say one person's hand is up in their front shot, but it's the other hand that's up in the next shot. And it's really obvious when you do the cut, but maybe there's some point where the hands go like this, where there's some kind of distraction that you don't actually notice that there's a miscontinuity, but whatever it is, you have to find either real continuity or tricked continuity or whatever will allow you to web it together to be able to keep it loose, but at the same time, keep everybody seeming like they're coming from the same reality. Because I think actually that's one of the goals often of editing that it should seem like it's not edited. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 100%. How did you choose, I'm assuming it's you, maybe a, a producer, how did you choose which show or which episodes to submit or to have judged? Or is that not the way it works? Uh, what, in terms of like an awards type of thing? Yeah. Generally, the producers would have a take on it and they would check with the creatives to say, are you good with that? And they almost always were the same choices. In the case of this Ace Awards, it's like, how could it not be the finale show to submit? Because it's the season finale, series finale show. <laughs> so how could you not put that show in? But yeah, it would be like the producers would suggest, ask the creatives what they thought. And if you felt differently, then you can say, no, I would actually prefer this one. And then they would honor that. As much Schitt's Creek as I have watched in my life, <laughs> I've watched a lot. I can't really think other than the theme song. I can't really think about music with this show. Can you talk about the use of music and dealing with a series composer or whatever it is? Yes. The composer was Meribeth Solomon. And there's very little music used throughout all of Schitt's Creek. There's like the opening, there's the closing, and very occasionally a little stingish kind of thing in the vein of the opening and closing. There was no composed music in it. The music that did get used would be like source music that you can use in that way that it becomes scores at times. It's a source cue, as in it's coming from the radio or it's coming from a stereo or coming from a television set, but you can still use it for an expressionistic purpose where that song is actually carrying some kind of emotional or humorous or kinetic or whatever connection to the scene. So it was like, from the beginning, the levies were like, no music. And we're like, really? No music? Everything's got music. And they're like, no music. It's like, great. Okay, let's embrace no music then. And no music worked. In some ways, the way it was written was so detailed. And in the art of comedy, drama, dramedy, whatever you want to call it, there was a certain musicality to the lyrics of the writing I found and the show itself had a musicality to it. Like the rhythms of the comedy and the rhythms of the dramatic aspects of it have a certain musicality, but there's very little music in the actual show in terms of composer music. Well, the jazz gals, they're like the singing troupe and they'll actually do certain songs throughout episodes periodically throughout the whole series. That creates a musicality to it. They might be at a bar. There's bar music going on, which actually creates a real vibe in and of itself. In the show, I think it was fourth season finale, Cabaret, there was like all the cabaret songs. They were putting on cabaret as like community theater, but those songs were throughout it. So they always found reasons to have music, but they're always like real reasons to have music. So it was really actually musical in terms of actual music in it, but it was never score or rarely ever score. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Trevor Ambrose. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. 
you can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A., all at the same time before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to Frame.io to start your free trial today. And now, more of my conversation with Trevor Ambrose. So... I'm assuming that when you are cutting a show and you're working with a director, you get it down to a specific time, but it's not up to the director to get it to time. That's probably a showrunner thing or. Yeah. We tried to keep it like make suggestions if you want with director, well, at least note them, put them in the timeline. Like if you go from this point to that point, you can take out 35 seconds or whatever. Occasionally take out that amount of time. The levies weren't too precious about if you took something out and be like, oh, I forgot to see that in there. They would remember it. They were both powerful intellectuals. They would remember everything that was in the show. So you didn't have to worry about them going like, well, if I didn't see it, now I'm confused. They would not be confused if you took something out. If it made good sense, if you're just taking things out to try and finish it and lock it, then it's too early a point to start doing that. At the director's stage, it's like, this really forwards the show. This really forwards the episode. If we take out the scene, for instance, or this part of a scene, great, do it. It gives us a chance to take a look at that and see if it worked. But don't start nickel and diming it to try and get it down to time. But at the same time, if they had suggestions, I would always mark them, put markers in and say exactly what that change would be. I would go through the show myself and put markers down for all the different places that I could see time coming out. We wouldn't be after taking time out right away with the producer's cut, which was the most important cut beyond the editor's cut. Of course, that's like a very important cut because that's where everything comes together. But in terms of the show really becoming the show, the producer's cut was a really intense, important cut. During that time, we wouldn't worry so much about getting the show down as we would finding the shape of the show. And then all those suggestions would be in place in terms of notes, like we could clip out this doublet of line, like these two lines can come out, these four lines could come out, the scene could end here, or the scene could start there. All those ideas that bring shows down, they're all in there. And then you start basically debating on what helps the show the most. Taking time out is often a very obvious thing. It's kind of like, this is not that interesting. (laughs) So why don't we take that out? But you can find a lot of time in small areas to take out as well. Anyway, so all that stuff would happen after we found this is the general shape of it. Okay, now let's bring it down to time. At the point that you need to bring it down, you've got all these options to go to and you can just debate on what hurts the least to take out and take that out and what hurts the most, save that for later. (laughs) And just keep trying to have that thing that you really want in there to make sure that you've got everything that you want in there in there. To be honest, because I binge the show, I don't even know, are there 
commercial breaks, what's the time that you're trying to get to? 2153 was the actual content time, which I can't remember. It may include credits at the end, but it was 2153 seen on CBC in Canada. There were commercial breaks. The same show would be seen on pop. I don't know if they've got uh, commercial breaks there. Honestly, I've got a bunch of devices and I just usually say, watch Schitt's Creek, watch another Schitt's Creek, watch another. (laughs) I I don't even know whether I'm watching it on Netflix or Amazon. I have no clue. Yeah, I I know exactly the feeling. Um, (laughs) I I think, and and I'll say it's on Netflix where there's no commercials. Yeah. So anyway, it can play seamlessly or it can play with commercials, but the actual content is 2153, 22 minutes approximately. Yeah. Can you talk to me about just dealing with notes? It sounds like you've been with the show long enough that you know the personalities, you know the politics pretty well, but what's it like to get notes and then try to accomplish them? There's always a debate of, is it a good idea to do the note or not? And we always have those discussions. So you don't just do something because you've been told to do it. It's like, okay, is there a good reason to do it? And sometimes as an editor, I'm fighting for things, often things like, let's take that out for time. And I find myself in positions of like, I really like that. I think it's really funny or there's an emotional beat there. So let's try not to do that. If the levies felt strongly, it's kind of like, no, we definitely should take that out. Then let's just take that out. I'm very flexible. But at the same time, you have to speak up in terms of, no, I really care for that. So maybe we shouldn't do that. There's always a good, healthy, and sometimes lively discussion about what should and shouldn't happen. And sometimes you get a note and it's kind of like, why do you want to do that particular note? And then they say the reason why they want that note done. And then you go, oh, okay, well, here's another possibility of the way we could accomplish that note. Because the main thing is to accomplish the purpose of the note. So you don't necessarily have to do the exact thing. Although I have to say the levies are two of the most skilled, even as performers and producers and writers, there are a couple of the most skilled editors, even though they're not on the keyboard doing the editing, but they're very editor oriented in terms of the way they understand film language and the way shots go together and rhythms and things like that. In a way, it was always like working with a couple of editors that were sitting beside you. To get back to your original question, how does the note process go? You just try and get behind the idea of what the note is about and try and find a solution to why that note is there to accomplish that thing. Like if you're trying to make a character sweeter or more snappy, then you just get behind whatever that would be. If it's a continuity error, that's an obvious thing. The note process for me would be like, understand the meaning of the note because you might not achieve the goal of the note by what has been asked of you. You might be able to achieve the point of the note through other means, but to understand the point of the note is the most important thing. So you can go after the effect that you want to create. And as editors, we get our opinion in there like crazy when we're putting this thing together. And then when it becomes someone else's time to do it, then you get behind their idea and go, okay, let's get behind your idea because now you're driving the ship and let's try and find ways to make what you want happen. And every once in a while you go, I'm not sure if you should do that because you try and protect some idea of it. You don't don't try and protect your work. You're watching it for the show. Like what I've always said is the show is your boss as opposed to the producer or director or whoever else is your boss. Try and separate your egos from it and just go like, what's best for the show? It helps you avoid arguments for one thing, but it also helps you focus on what's really beneficial to the show. Especially when creative people are younger, (laughs) sometimes they can be very ego based in terms of, well, that was my idea. And now you don't want to do my idea. And I feel threatened by that. So I'm going to try and make my idea happen even more. Or that's your idea. I'm going to fight you on your idea. And so if you can take all that kind of idea of ego out of it, you're just working on 
what makes a better show. I don't disagree with the person. I just think that the show would be better this way. Or you have to also be completely open because often as an editor, you're going, this is the way I'm sure that it should be. But if you don't stay open to what another person's ideas are, then you're just stuck in your own opinion. If you go, okay, well, let's give your idea a try. Often I'm not sure, I might not even agree, but let's give it a try and see what happens. All of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, I get it. I've got to get off my opinion because this is a way better idea. Or you discover something else by doing that. And sometimes you have to, if everyone's being honest, you have to go like, let's put it back to the way it was because it was better or neither idea are good. We found out something else by doing the two different ways that we need to find another way to solve the situation. So it's this bossless edit suite that you're trying to achieve where you're not trying to boss people and people aren't bossing you. You're just trying to serve the project you're on. And it's quite helpful. Yeah, 100%. It takes the egos out of it. And that also helps from the editor's standpoint, I think, if the director or producer or creative or whoever you're trying to deal with, studio person, knows that your goal is simply the story, then yeah. it makes you a lot easier to deal with because they don't think you're fighting them. They know yeah. you're trying to do the best for the story. You're hitting exactly on what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. As soon as you take on that attitude, it allows everyone to go, yeah, that's exactly what we should be doing. Because everybody at the end of the day, or should be, everybody at the end of the day just wants to make a better thing. And if you get too involved in this egoy thing, like a person could end up working against the very thing that they're trying to make better because they get into this shoving match with someone and they're going like, no, my way. And now you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. But if everyone goes, let's just relax and we're all on the same side, but we're coming from different perspectives, you can set an atmosphere where everyone feels just relaxed and making a better show than it is to see who's right. So it sounds like from when we're talking about your approach to a scene that you work almost entirely off of these selects reels and various edits instead of from the bin. Do you worry at all about how your bin is organized? Do you go to it for any reason? Well, I do a little bit, but I don't go into frame view or anything because I don't really go to it in a way that that's where the creative thing's happening. The creative thing's happening, like I put everything into the timeline and figure it out from there and then start honing it down from there and focusing on what it is. But I do go to the bin in terms of Avid, find frame or match frame. Mm -hmm. So you're in a sequence and you just go match frame, find bin. And then it takes you right to the bin. So it's like, it takes you to take three that you're on. But now I want to see take four and two and one. So it takes you right there. So you can start popping them up. And yeah, at that point, I will do a more traditional, throw it into the source monitor, get the part that I want and put it in. I also, especially if I'm working with a director or producer that wants to see all the other takes, the reads on that particular line, I'll go to that all sequence that I said I set up in the first place that's got all of the footage for the scene. And I will go through and I'll know the setup that I'm going for. It's scene three, shot B. I'll go into that all and then clip out all the different reads from that sequence just by scanning through and going, they set it here and here. I'll copy them, put them at the end of the sequence, and then take, say, all three of those new alts and throw them into the existing cut sequence. So then we can look at them and go, which one do you like better? Or is there something that will serve the purpose of the scene better with a different read? But you're dropping that into the sequence so you can see it in context. Yeah, uh, often to, it's a fully cut sequence, but you just go bash a whole bunch of alts to just go like, how do they feel? Like you might even have some run up time to go like, how do they feel in terms of the whole context of it? Will this new read fit into the way the character was in former parts of the scene and after parts of the scene? Will it fit in? I'm guessing 
after you describe that, you and I are both so old on the Avid that new ideas of alternate takes where you can place alternate takes in the sequence, you're not doing that. You're just literally dropping into the middle of a sequence. Into the middle of the sequence near where that work is or just the one and then going, okay, yeah, it does work better. Clip out the other one and then start working this into the cut. What, why, what were you thinking? In Resolve, there's a really cool feature where you can put all those alts in a single clip. So let's say you've already edited take one mm. into your scene and you watch it and you're like, oh, there's take one. Instead of editing them in a row, alt one, alt two, alt three, alt four, you can actually cut them all into the same space of the one take and then hit play and say play with alt one and then you hit play and you play with alt two and then you hit play and play with alt three and even if they're different lengths it edits itself it knows oh this one's two seconds longer than alt one have you done this sounds cool oh it's super cool it's definitely doable in resolve and i think it's doable in Avid. I'm getting into for the first time, I haven't done it barely ever. I did it on one documentary, Script Sync. Oh, which yeah. Kind of, which it sounds like there's some kind of relationship between this idea and Script Sync. These are the different areas, but this is really doing some artificial intelligence or something to that. Yeah, you just drag each one of your alts onto the same clip space there. in the timeline. Yeah. Like, oh, that's take one. You drop yeah. two on top of it and three on top of it, and then you yeah. can choose which alt you want to listen to when you play the script back. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you don't use script sync. Oh, I am this time, actually. I'm on a feature right now and I'm using script sync on that for the first time. Is there any improv in that movie? There's tons of improv. So yeah. How does that work with script sync? It doesn't. The script sync part of it will be great in terms of when I'm working later with the director and also doing recuts for myself going like, what's the alt on that? What's the alt on that? What's the alt on that? So the script sync will work good in terms of showing me and the director and producers what are alternate lines from the script. So that's cool. You know that already. Mm -hmm. In terms of the improvs, it's too big an ask for the assistants. It's already a big ask to do script sync. It's so involved to do it. But... I've got a couple of really great assistants right now. And the one that's doing script sync is also doing all the logging as well. And he's putting markers in for every time there's an improv, because this director is really into improv in a very interesting, fun way. He's trying to mine any comedy he can. So he has alternate lines for potential funny lines. So they'll do the take in the normal script. And then this director, Michael Davis, will go in and go, okay, as an alternative, ask the actor, okay, reply this way to it, reply this way to it, and then start feeding the actors different lines to say. And there'll be like 10 different versions to say the same line. Many of the times you do go with the script, but sometimes it's like, wow, that is so funny. And anything that outdoes the script is kind of like, wow, that's just a laugh that wasn't there in the first place. Anyways, you end up getting like these really long takes, 10 minute takes, because there's so many improvs in it. So the assistant that also does the script sync just puts a marker on each one of those improvs and writes in what that improv was. So through script sync, I'll be able to show the director and producers what the real script line was. So I'll be able to go through it that way. When it comes to improvs, I'm just going to have to go to my timelines with all in it. Mm -hmm. And then going to each marker and going like, here's an improv, here's an improv, here's an improv. So that will be the solution to that rather than writing all this stuff into the script, which I think it would be so organized. It would be confusing. It would just be like you're splicing atoms at that point. Yeah, it can be. I know I did an interview, I think, with Brent White, who did the second Ghostbusters movie. 
And he makes the assistants do that <laughs> with script sync. Wow. All the improvs are written into script sync. I think that with one more assistant, right. you'd, you'd need more assistants in this movie, but yeah. maybe one more assistant, then we could get away with it. I'm not sure if I would like it. I just, I've never worked with script sync. So I'm going to find out I've done it a little bit and I did enjoy it just in terms of, wow, you don't have to skate around to find things anymore. You can just go right to it. I still prefer the way I cut. I wouldn't want to cut from the beginning that way. Cause there is something to be said for using a really good area of a performance, even if it's like, a whole take or a part of a take, then you have the continuation of that person saying that from each segment to each segment and simple practical things like their composition doesn't change that much, but their attitude doesn't change that much, but it's also their momentum is held together the way they did do it. That's not to say that you can't swap things out, which we do all the time for all kinds of good reasons. So I'm not sure if I would like to use script sync from the beginning because it might become too fragmented in terms of, oh, that was a good idea and that's a good idea. And you get all the best of the best, but things don't hold together that good. Yeah, that's what a lot of people that use script sync will say that they don't use it for the initial cut because otherwise it's too cutty and too disjointed. Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty common finding with it. And where it shines, of course, is sitting down with a director and going, is this the best moment? Yeah. And then you go, yeah, yeah. I can show you. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that you're saying that because that was my take at first it was suggested and I was like, I don't want to do that. It seems so inorganic. And then thinking about it with all the pressures that would come with a studio film that I just thought that I better be at the ready as much as I can when I'm dealing with other people like directors in the studio. And it did make sense. So I'm glad that you're saying that. Yeah. Have you found that you can play in a row all the specific takes? Yeah. Automatically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody's taught you well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a pretty quick study, but I've also been taught well. There's something interesting about it. I think you have to constantly be willing to try other approaches. Otherwise, you just get stuck. So I'm always interested in what a different way like this to resolve things. sounds really interesting. Yeah, I just used it recently. I was recutting a film that was originally cut in Final Cut Pro 10 years ago, and we're recutting it and adding stuff to the original show from 10 years before, and we didn't want to cut in Final Cut. And it came yeah. into Resolve very easily. Like cool. in two hours or something, I had the entire show up and running in Resolve. And really? you could, wow. yeah, link to the original 4K red footage. I was showing the director, look, you can watch a scene and look at a take and, oh, let's look at the other take. And you're watching it in context, one take at a time without having to edit it in work? yourself. I it's amazing. how it works. By, you cut it together with take one. Let's just say all you're going to look is four different takes of the same setup. Yeah. So you cut in, take one of that setup, and then you drag the clip onto that same spot from the source monitor, the next one, and you drop it. There's a little contextual menu, and you say, this is take two, and here's yeah. take three and take four. And so it doesn't... Oh, so they're all packed in there. And, and, it, right, they, but it doesn't create a stack. It's not one, two, three, four. Yeah, yeah. It's one little segment in the timeline that... If you opened it up, there would be four different takes and you can choose when you hit the play button, whether you want to watch take one, take two, take three, or take four as you watch it in context. See. And this requires it to be straight cuts, I guess. Like there can't be overlapping dialogue. Otherwise that will get messed up, would it? They can. No, you can overlap dialogue because it literally shifts everything down by the amount of whatever, however you got it cut, it mm -hmm. knows you're in and you're out that you cut. Take one is two and a half seconds long. Take two is three seconds long. And it shifts everything down by a half a second. 
It just wow. literally pushes the entire timeline like a ripple each time you play. It's really cool. Is Resolve much different in terms of interface than an Avid? Like, is it easy to just jump? Relatively, but you know, if you cut in Final Cut, it's almost okay. identical. As a matter of fact, the keyboard commands are identical to Final Cut. Well, it's been a few years, but I got quite proficient with that. So in other words, I'd be able to just get used yes. to it again. I mean, I got paid by Resolve for a couple of years to go out to LA and sit with all kinds of different, they were bringing in ace editors. And yeah. I just, one day at a time, they would have me as their personal trainer. Cool. And I would show them stuff and they would go, oh, I don't like that. Can you do this? And I'd go, no, you can't do that. Because I knew Avid and Resolve. So they would ask me Avid questions and I would be able to go, no, you can't do that. Or I've yeah. got a better way to do that. Yeah. Or cool. that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. It's like knowing two different languages or something to switch gears. Yeah. It's exactly what it's I tell people that all the time is that learning a new NLE is the thoughts that you want to convey in editing. Yeah. Now I just have to say them in French instead of English. You know? yeah. What do you think is the best edit application in the world mm -hmm. right now? I'm still an avid guy. I mean, I've been on it since 92. So yeah, that's a long time. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Same time. Yeah the original version five or something like that yeah, yeah yeah exactly it was version five and it was on kids in the hall and uh there were a beta site for avid canada they called it a beta site so we would get all kinds of perks and things like that yeah i love kids in the hall what another great show yeah it was a wonderful experience to work on that and also you've been on avid at the beginning and then also then switched over to final cut pro and then yeah, i chose to switch over to final cut pro at one point on purpose it was looking at one point i can't remember what the era was by 2010 a lot of things were going over there but it looked like a lot of things were changing and i just thought to stay flexible in the mind as i'm getting older that i should learn a whole new thing and it was really difficult i remember i kept saying like i hate final cut pro i hate i kept saying to myself i hate final cut pro because I kept trying to do Avid things on it that you couldn't do. And anyways, when I finally stopped hating it and just went, accept it. And actually I had a friend come in and go, this is the way you really do it. And then it was like, oh, I've been doing it wrong. Once that thing opened up, you know, those ridiculous looking visual puzzles that you look at and they're really tacky and ugly looking, but if you relax your eyes, you see the three-dimensional picture in it. Uh -huh, yep. It's kind of like looking at the, the Avid was just like, it was so chaotic and hectic to me. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, I get it. It's just a different type of thing. And then I really liked it. So I did that on purpose. And I can't even remember the reason why I was Final Cut Pro, Final Cut Pro, because I had my own system and I was renting that and all that sort of thing. And then it came down to Final Cut Pro was getting phased out. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so it's not going to stay. So I went back to Avid to rent an Avid. And I was glad to come back to Avid. I was fine with it. There were so many flexibility things that I really liked about Final Cut Pro though. And I'm glad that I did it just to show myself that I can do another application. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've been on Avid from the beginning. I actually started in film, going to film school, and I'd been doing all kinds of film work as a assistant editor and assistant dialogue editor and all that kind of thing. And then I got a chance to work on the Convergence Transform system, which was a video editing system. So it was like three quarter inch video editing. They transferred the film to three quarter inch and they punch hold the negative. And then the transform was a process of linking time code to key numbers on the negative and it would do the calculation. So it was like video editing that would calculate what would happen to the film to conform it. So I went through that, which is really an eye burnout, the whole video editing thing, and then got a chance with the kids in the hall to work on Avid. And it was just like, wow, 
because I was like getting this is such a burnout looking at a black screen with yellow numbers with EDLs on it. You're constantly scrutinizing on it and whipping through tape. And it was just like driving me crazy. And then when I went in for the Kids in the Hall interview, they showed me an Abbott and it was like this colorful computer with the metaphoric desktop and the bins. And it was just like, wow, this is beautiful. And that's how I started it to happen. Well, I know you're working on another show right now and you need to get off on that. I really have enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. This is a wonderful chance to talk about one of my favorite shows. That's great. I'm glad that you appreciate it. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about it. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out Pro Video Coalition for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Trevor Ambrose. Also, thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to our sponsor, Evercast, for making this podcast possible. And of course, thanks to Frame.io for their past support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. Please stay with us as we continue the series at blog.frame.io. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. And be sure to check out lots of great feature interviews at our new home. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>